summer children and welcome to another episode of the podcast peep this noise i'm uh one of your hosts logan johnson and i like birding i'm greg marchant and for better or for worse i like early 20 teens music pop music and and i'm nathaniel johnson and i like learning about the american legal system Wow, that's a dry one to start us off on. Dour note there, huh? Yeah, that's well... That'll get you. As some of you may know, I am starting law school in the fall, but they're having me go through this summer workshop thing, which is incredibly helpful because it's like, hey, here's basically what you need to know about law school and just general information about the law before your professors rip you apart in an actual class. Yeah, I read law for dummies, so I'm good. Yeah. Didn't, um, didn't we just, like... Didn't we just like uh, critique the American law system a little Absolutely. bit in our last uh, in our last podcast? Look, look. not enough. I like <laughs> not enough, about- or you wouldn't like it. <laughs> no, I like mind. learning about it. Is what I said. I like <laughs> learning about it, and there's a difference. And I actually am partial to the American legal system. I think that it's very nuanced and complex and interesting, um, despite well, the many flaws that exist within it. Guess who can never serve on a jury? Pretty sure you have to be impartial. Can't be a judge either. That's a bummer. <laughs> Wait, hang on. I think that's not what that means. No, that's it. That's the whole thing. That's if you're partial <laughs> about anything, you're done. You just ruined your entire career. You can only ever yeah. be an attorney. You're gonna you apply. <laughs> you're gonna apply for a judgeship, and this podcast is gonna leak, and it's gonna be over for you. Huh? Everybody, everybody has leaks now. Everybody in an office, they have leaks now. And this is yours. Well, what I was going to say is it's been a very humbling experience for me because it's not usually hard for me to pick up on what's going on. Like, sometimes I'll struggle with a few really heady concepts here or there, or just, you know, struggle in my writing in general and have to pass it to the two of you for editorial reasons. Cool. Humble brag. I love this. Keep going. (laughs) Um, But usually I'm, I'm just very comfortable in a learning setting. It's not hard for me to learn. Um... But I keep getting this law school homework where my job is to read a case and learn what new rule the judge made out of the case. And let's just say I've gotten all of those wrong the entire summer. So I'm feeling feeling a little smacked down, especially because as soon as we're in class, we start going over it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, of course it was this other thing and not the thing that I thought it was. Now I just feel dumb. Um, But despite that, I still actually really like it. That's fair. I couldn't do it. Remember that when you're learning like really specific stuff in law school, I can't do it. Are you saying that I shouldn't talk to you about it? Is that what you're saying? All I'm saying is don't overshare. Oh. There's always a line. Ponder. Reflect. It, it's okay. I'll probably listen. Okay. The probably is reassuring. <laughs> this is a good start. Maybe we should start another podcast. Legal Eagles is probably taken. Legal Eagle is the YouTube channel. I, I didn't watch. say Legal Eagle. <laughs> I doubt he clamped down two trademarks. Le- legal Eagles is um is a m- movie or TV franchise okay. though. 
Fair. What about legal beagles? Legal smeagles. Ooh. There's legal beagle sig- singular on uh, on his channel, except she's actually this a is true. poodle, I think. Yes, but he does call her the legal beagle, which is very fun. What about... <laughs> this is good. We'll go through and we'll critique different laws and figure out, like, what's up with them. What about legally blonde with a question mark because we're actually going to interrogate that question is it legal (laughs) is she legally blonde it's anyone's guess find out on our podcast legally blonde with a question mark which is the name of it i mean on on some official documents you put down your hair and eye color and it's true those are legally and draft registration those are legally valid forms of identity what (laughs) yeah they ask you your complexion so they ask you your skin color and your complexion on Old draft registration cards for World War One. Don't ask how I know that, but I've looked at a lot of them. <laughs> but, but yeah, they. So you would say like, I'm white, but I'm ruddy. I <laughs> so, don't ask. I don't know what that means. <laughs> I was gonna say, would you classify yourself as ruddy? It I probably just, mean it probably means either you get out of breath, you're you're out of breath easily if you start running, or you uh, or you just sunburn really easily. So so you can't go for a runny because you get all ruddy. Is that what you're saying? No. There was, there was one. No draft one should card ever that say saw. that. <laughs> there was one draft card I saw while I was pawing through old records, um, where they had misspelled it, or maybe the typewriter had double typed, and so I read Rudy, right? And this was like a series of draft cards, I think out of Pennsylvania, if I remember right. And I was just thinking, a lot of dudes. Judy self- fruity. Yeah. Hell, oh, Rudy. That's really good. I was thinking there were a lot of dudes self-identifying as comeback football stars for Notre Dame. <laughs> like a lot. <laughs> like a weird amount. <laughs> like they were just looking for Rudy the whole time. Like, are you Rudy? Are you Rudy? And every guy kept being like, yeah, it's me. They I'm really needed guy. him for the war effort. Guy. We talked a lot about uh, law. Yeah, Greg? sorry. Um, yeah, I, I've been... For for some reason, as I've listened to the radio this week, I've really just latched on to things that I used to hear at like high school dances and that kind of thing. And at one point, um, at one point, uh, "Raise Your Glass" by Pink came awesome. on, and I've just spent. This was early in the week, like Sunday or Monday or something like that. And I've just spent the rest of the week since then musing on how uh, on how a lot of Pink's music seems to define the feeling that i get as a millennial in this time period that's fair it's on the topic of pink i i don't generally enjoy listening to female artists as much as male artists because i tend to sing along and even though i'm bad at singing i feel like i can match the voice of male vocalists better that's see i'm the other way because i'm i'm like a high tenor when i sing. i was gonna say those are the words of a man who sang tenor two in high school <laughs> Right. Now, Taylor I, Swift is right in my comfortable range. I would all, again, I cannot sing well. I just really enjoy it. And then two, my like statement here is based on nothing but a gut feeling. That said, Pink is one of my favorite female artists because I feel that millennial angst whenever she sings and I'm like, "Yeah, this speaks to me." I I honestly I I heard uh about a year ago, I don't know how I uh, missed it because it's from 2017, but a year, year and a half ago, I heard What About Us for the first time, and I got emotional for that song. Nice. So wow, me, you went that long. That's really impressive. Let I don't me. know how I missed it, but it's probably my favorite song of it's hers. It's a good one. Yeah. 
Let me ask you a question. Is it just Pink you've been listening to or other like 2010 stuff as well? Uh, it, it started, I think it started actually like uh, on s- this past Saturday or something like that when Elena pulled up the 2012 pop denthology from like that channel on YouTube Dang. run by a guy by, by the name of Dan something. Oh, I was oh, hoping his name Dan. would be Popped. Um, uh, no, he's, but he does the pop danthology for, for each year. I think he started pop in like danthology. That's yeah, very danthology. Good. And I think he started in like 2011, wow. pulled up the 2012 one. And I realized that I knew every single song and could start singing the initial lyrics awesome. to all of them. That's impressive. And, and I started you... with that. And then I started listening to the radio and just taking, just skimming until I found a song from that era playing. And there's just been an awful lot of them playing recently. And I liked it. And ever since then, the DJs had you fallen in love again. Oh, yeah. Usha, usha, usha. I went birding. Okay, what is that? Because you keep saying it, and I keep thinking bird watching. Not to, not to get overly political, but um, a man got arrested for it, or got the cops called on him for it, for doing it in Central Park next to, uh, near a white woman and her dog. Yeah, a black man. <laughs> okay. A black man. Yeah. I mean, wow. Okay, so let me now ask, I'm really let me, interested. <laughs> let, me, let me tell you what it is, all right? Let me lay down the straight truth about birding. Because Greg's got me worried. I'm going to alienate half our listenership because I, they're probably all birders. They're you all mean like, like all eight of them? They're sitting in the uh, Ornithological Society right now, like with bated breath, listening to what I'm about to say about birding, and I don't think they're going to like it. Birding is what bird watchers call bird watching. <laughs> <laughs> it is inscrutable to me. This is a real thing that we have a term for something and the people who do it call it something totally different. Well, this actually happens a lot. So people call like hardcore fans of Star Trek Trekkies, but they call themselves Trekkers. Yeah, I feel like this is different because what they do is watch the bird and I feel like birders are saying, we are the bird. Like, we become the bird. So what it is... Uh, you but go, you said you like this. Uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves. It's okay. You go out and you hike, which I love, and you're out in nature and you try to spot birds and identify them, which I'm very bad at because I have poor, literal, like, I'm legally blonde. <laughs> um, no? You're giving me a weird look like that joke. Just to, I don't think it landed, but it's okay. Hey, birds land. And... Uh, <laughs> good transition, huh? See, I brought that back. Oof. Um, Delayed reaction. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so, but what I am going to say is, is people compile life lists. So I have a buddy who's really into it, and he's on, his life list was at 248 when we went up today. Uh, and our goal was to get him a 250 unique birds scene, and we did it. Wow. We saw, but nice. I decided I'm going to be like a connoisseur of this kind of thing. So whenever I see a bird that I don't want to add to my life list, I'm just going to close my eyes. And then that way I only see like the rarest birds. I'm going to be the kid that trades away all of his commons for like Holofoy Lugias. Like nothing. Like I, I see a California gull on the road. I'm going to close my eyes before I can even internalize that that's a California gull. If I'm driving, so be it. Um, I'm going to be a, an exclusive collector. So I saw one today that, I can't remember the name of, but it does not belong here in Utah. It's rare. It was a they call it a code three. Well they rare. So I they, they work for the bourgeoisie, so it was the here bourgeoisie. on a biz, So it was so here on a business trip. <laughs> true. <laughs> true. 
He's migrated over from the East Coast to share some intelligence. Speaking of people who came from uh, Roswell to share intelligence, I realize that's not the East Coast, but I'm transitioning, all right? Speaking of people who came from Roswell to share intelligence, today we're talking about Lilo and Stitch, a movie that has an undercover CIA, no, a retired CIA agent working as a social worker in it. Awesome. <laughs> like, so good. The craziest twist ending ever. <laughs> I'm the guy they call when things go wrong. It, yeah, it turns out he was a fixer for the CIA. Not the whole time, just in a past life. <laughs> and we are definitely going to talk about that. Uh, though, I am going to, of course, introduce the uh, the movie Lilo and Stitch. Uh, this is one of my personal favorite Disney films. Like, top five. I put it up there with, like, The Emperor's New Groove and Hunchback of Notre Dame. And Frozen. Um, and Frozen, too. And Beauty and the Beast. Great, that's all five. Nope, we've we've got four so far. They were uh, they were Emperor's New Groove, Lilo and Stitch, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Frozen and Frozen Two, Beauty and the Beast. All right. And number five is saved for you know when I find that special Disney film. Um, but that said, I uh, I really really love this film. Um, this comes after what's known as the Disney Renaissance. Now the Disney Renaissance is that time period from like 1989 to 1999 where Disney had a lot of musical films that were really, really well-loved. Films like um, Aladdin, Mulan, The Little Mermaid most notably, uh, Beauty and the Beast, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and then the uh, movie that killed off the Renaissance was Tarzan. And then after Tarzan, you get four really weird movies that I really love, all of. Um, One we've already talked about on the show, which is Atlantis. Um, But then there's Lilo and Stitch, The Emperor's New Groove, and Treasure Planet. Um, and they're all just kind of weird. They don't fit the typical Disney formula. And this one especially not. It is definitely not a princess film, and it's got a weird pitch. It's this little family that lives in Hawaii of a big sister and a little sister who have suffered a terrible family tragedy where their parents are dead, and now the big teenage or young adult sister is taking care of her little sister who seems to be around the age of five. And... They have social workers constantly involved in their life, and the older sister, Nani, has a hard time holding down a job, and Lilo's not a very well-adjusted kid in regular society. It's just kind of a mess. Um, And their life drastically changes when an alien crashes onto Hawaii who is a fugitive from from intragalactic forces, and his name is Stitch, and they adopt him as their dog. It's weird, and I love it. Um, uh, they buy him as chattel. Actually. Oh, yes. Sorry. A very important plot point. They, they adopt him legally that is, for two That is not the worst thing about, uh, about the government situation that goes on here. Oh, believe me. <laughs> Don't I know it. Um, there, there is a... That, that's, like the, that's like the outcome of a much deeper uh, political thing I was noticing going yes, on. Yes, there's, there's a lot of great stuff to talk about in this movie, both good and bad. Though, on the whole, I personally believe that this movie is a good film that is well worth watching and is less problematic than many of disney's other films um not to say that it's a perfect film every film has its problems um but that said i want to move into the first question uh which is that this movie in my opinion is less about the titular character of stitch and his personal arc of growth and more about the relationship between the sisters lilo and nani Uh, This relationship is strained to begin with due to the nature of uh, social workers being involved in their life and the circumstances of their relationship. 
Um, and the introduction of Stitch into their family as a dog strains that relationship uh, more, and it drastically alters the relationship. So the question I have is, what are some ways that you view Stitch as a stitch in their relationship? Oh, you can hear his grin, and it... <laughs> oh, that was Bush League. You can do better. And in what ways does he fail to live up to his name? So I, when I first read that question, I thought I thought you meant stitch, like you know, a stitch in your side, like oh sure, when you when you've run to when you've run when you've been running and breathing hard, and then you just get that clenching pain in your side, and I was just. I, I, it took me a minute to realize that you were meaning, like, something that repairs it. Right. Well, I think actually both are applicable. Like, he's both a pain and a repair in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, which is what my question is driving at. Um, I, I mean, I think the point, I, I think the point that I usually take from the movie is that he, uh, him coming into their lives kind of, gives them uh gives them a little bit of uh perspective on all of the on all of the things that have been um that have been going wrong up to that point but honestly this time around when i was watching through it i noticed something that i hadn't noticed before which is uh which is that that action of them kind of like starting to heal and understand each other in their in their new situation and kind of adjusting to adjusting to this world in which their in which their family just consists of them without their without their parents um actually it seems like it starts back when Lilo uh back when Lilo and uh Nani are having that conversation um where Lilo says uh how does she put it she says i like you uh i like you more as a sister than as a mom or something like that yeah and then she says and you like me more as a sister than as a rabbit right yes (laughs) (laughs) yeah i not not only is that a really sweet scene but it kind of changed my perspective on it because them interacting with stitch you get moments like this is my family it is little and broken, but good. Okay, I gotta it's hand good. it to you. Well done on the voice there. That's that's yeah, not a half bad stitch. You're giving first grade me a run for his money. Oh, thank you. That was the <laughs> skill that I had, the one skill I could lay claim to in first grade was speaking like Stitch. I, I do Wouldn't a you pretty... swear as Stitch sometimes? <laughs> oh yeah, using his swear words. Right, not like uh, the actual yeah, like the English he, swears. The one that he says, which is like. At the beginning of this movie, he says it, and it is apparently so vulgar that it makes a robot throw up, which is, like, very funny to me. Yeah. Me too. There's, like, some really good times when he, like, talks an alien and somebody responds to it. Like, like Jamba says at some point, like, leave my mother out of this. And you're just like, what did he say? Like, this is awesome. I, I, here's my opinion of this movie, and this is maybe not related to the question you asked, but... I like the arc of this movie an awful lot. The ending is, like, super rushed. So my opinion is this. They were sitting in the writer's room, and there were four dudes in the writer's room, and three of them were pitching this plot, right? The director, the screenwriter, and then the guy who gets the... Or, and then, like, the uh, like the other screenwriter or whatever. But then there's the guy 
who has the credit in the opening credits is based on an idea by. <laughs> so it's like not even like he wrote a short story or anything. I'm not trying to drag this dude. In fact, he's about to become the hero of my story. Because while they're sitting here and like hammering out the actual narrative, he was the dude quietly in the background, almost inaudibly at first, but gradually louder, saying, shots, 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 shots. And eventually he convinced him. And I think maybe three quarters late through the film, the screenwriters just started taking shots. <laughs> because this film goes from like emotive and fun to like confusing to just absolute off the wall buck wild in like 15 minutes. Like, oh, they're surfing. That's some, wait, what's, is he trying to drown him? This is strange. Oh, the house is on fire. This is good. Oh, the aliens are just here now. Oh, Cobra Bubbles, which is not his Christian name. Because if you remember, his name is Mr. Bubbles, but his knuckles say Cobra. Is, <laughs> dude, this movie, it's wild and weird, but it rips. Um, but I will give the screenwriters a lot of credit here, actually, because to circle back to your question on this, uh, one thing that I noticed in this movie, have you ever sung a song like when you were a kid that's around, right? Sure, like so somebody, um, row, row, row your boat. Right. And then so after the first chorus of row, row, row your boat, somebody else joins in. Like, just a little off-tempo, but just off-tempo enough that it's actually okay that we're echoing now. That's this movie, right? How so? hear me out. Hear me out. Yes, please, deliver us your grand thesis. What's the first thing that happens in the setup for this movie? Um, first important event is that their parents, do they pass away? Is that, like... Yeah, they're, they, they, get in, dead. they get in a car crash. Okay. I. Yeah. She explains this to Stitch in the midpoint of the movie. No, I know. And I had, like, some background noise when that happened, and I was like, You're I right. could rewind, but, <laughs> like, I'm fine. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure they passed away. It'd be wild if they just skipped. No, <laughs> I mean, this movie does, like, kind of go places emotionally, so, like, maybe it wouldn't be. Well, so, like, there's a part later where she's, like, when Stitch is leaving and she's looking at the picture, and she's like, I always remember the people who leave. And I was like, yo, did they just dip? <laughs> like, did they just go? <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> um... But no, so they, they passed away, and that's like the first inciting incident, right? And then immediately, Nani's placed in a position where she has to take care of Lilo, and then the social workers come. Then what happens? We get Stitch, and Lilo's put in a position where she has to take care of her, and then the social workers come. <laughs> huh. It's <laughs> okay, just weird. Same. No, you're not wrong. Of, no, that's wow. actually kind of cool. Yeah. It follows this cadence of it's either Lilo, somebody's coming for Lilo, or somebody's coming for Stitch the whole time. And so you say, how is he a stitch? He's not really a stitch, but he recontextualizes their relationship in an important way, right? Because it's very clear at the beginning of this that even with the threat of social worker looming, Lilo does not understand Nani at all. But then by the time she's dealing with her own little monster who's destroying things, she absolutely begins to understand her older sister. What a cool read. Yeah, Isn't it cool that's how pretty just, cool. Like, over here, like, Flapjacks has had a, an actual sizzling hot Lilo and Stitch take. Like, <laughs> I'm feeling pretty good about that. I was hoping I could save it for a little later in the cast, but it really fit oh, in nicely here. Well, thanks for tuning into this episode of Peep This Noise. There's nothing more to say. In fact, we've probably already burned pretty close to half an hour anyway. <laughs> we need some time to talk about Cobra Bubbles, right? We, we do. Um, I, I actually did want to echo some of what Logan said, though, um, in my take on this. Lilo does begin to understand Nani, like you said, uh, because she does have to take care of Stitch, who is relatively destructive. Uh, but I don't think it's so much that Stitch is a mirror for Lilo, 
Um, and then she's able to see herself and Nani in that relationship. I think it's that Nani has been put in a position of incredible responsibility um, that she's just not equipped to handle yet. Um, Turns out, <laughs> with great responsibility, it does not always come with great power. <laughs> yeah, no, and that's that's a really important thing to recognize. Um, but Nani, for some reason, is like, yeah, I'm not handling the responsibilities that I have well. Let's give Lilo extra responsibilities. Yeah, the wildest thing about this movie, I mean, I know what she's trying to do, right? Because she sees Lilo pray for the angel, right? Right. And she's like... What if I got her like a friend, right? So I see what she's trying to do. Yeah. But the idea that she's like, I basically have a veritable grease fire in my kitchen. Why don't I throw some water on it and just right. hope for the best is wild to me. But, but it crazy makes enough, story. it is the best thing that she could do. Because once Lilo starts taking on that responsibility, she and Nani's relationship continues to improve on the whole. Yeah, but not enough to, like, impress Cobra Bubbles. No, that took literal aliens. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Um, and we will, t there's a whole question in here about Cobra. Uh, but let's go ahead and move on to the next question, which is about David, um, one of the great side characters. Um, he is the would-be boyfriend of Nani. Uh, man, that boy is thirsty. Um, but he is constantly supporting. He's actually okay to not be the boyfriend. He is not as thirsty as Nani, who wrote in her diary <laughs> that she likes his butt. <laughs> And his, uh, what does she say? Hair. No, no, she uses an adjective. Fancy hair. Fancy hair. And he's like, she thinks my hair's fancy? I, awesome. I love that he refuses to acknowledge that Lilo said that, like, Nani likes his butt. And she, he's just like, like, he knows that his butt is great. <laughs> but he's, he was surprised about the hair. She thinks it's fancy? <laughs> As he, like, puts his fingers through it. Yeah, it's pretty <laughs> astonishingly good. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, the point is, he's... Even though he definitely wants this romantic relationship with Nani, he is willing to just be a good friend the whole way through. Like, he, like, obviously asks her out on dates and makes jokes about them dating, but he, when he shows up, he's like, hey, I think I found you a job at such and such place. That's his priority. It's not like, hey, girl, let's go out again, right? Like, he does ask for this throughout the movie, but that's not his primary objective that's his secondary objective and it's really rare that we see um male romantic interest characters who are that way in my opinion usually it's like all about like developing that romantic interest so i'll go ahead sorry i, um, I was just gonna ask a clarifying question but i'll wait yeah, till you're no, done go ahead um so this was the point, th this is kind of the point at which I'm confused about what you mean by how does he fill the role Stitch is supposed to fill. Yeah. Because I, I feel like he's uh, <laughs> super confused about this part too. The role Stitch is supposed to fill is as the alien who crashes on Earth. This dude doesn't even come close. In fact, I would even argue with your pitch of him as a constant support because this is also like the tool who's like, you know, Stitch. It'd be really cool if you just left, if you just dipped, which is, becomes the catalyst for, I don't know, what was that thing that happens at the end of this movie? The house burning down. <laughs> so, like, I don't know. Like, maybe not this dude. Like, he's cool and all, but, but again, this is another, this is a round, because he burns down the stage and then indirectly burns down the house. Dang it! <laughs> no, this dude, this dude supports my thesis. Anyway. But, uh... But yeah, is Stitch supposed to be Nani's romantic interest? No, is... no, 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 no. Time is a uh, circle. 
Is David supposed to fall from his base? No, so uh, this is supposed to be kind of a follow-up to the first question, where Stitch is supposed to help bring Nani and Lilo together. Like, that's the function he serves in the story. And I'm asking, how does David both do that and fail to do that? Like, in the same way that we talked about Stitch. I don't know if he fails to do it. Like, to be totally frank, there's going to be, like, some some folks out there who will maybe disagree with me. That's not his job. Right? And I don't mean that, like, you should, like, never, like, try to help people or, like, look for people outside of yourself. But, like, this is not something that should be keeping David up at night. Right? Like, he does a good job to help here, but he doesn't fail. Right? You can't fail. Like, it's it's not his responsibility to succeed here. Right? Okay, sure. He does, like, awesome work. And I think that, like, he does succeed in, like, helping them relax, especially in the Hawaiian roller coaster ride sequence. Um... But again, like, I I just think it's really important we highlight here, like, I I think it'd be really easy to be like, well, how did he fail to fix their relationship? Dude, that relationship was, like, gone before he stepped foot in the picture, right? And he does, like, some awesome things to, like, try and help it, but, like, sure. Part of of the point for, part of the point of the movie for me is not necessarily Lilo, earlier I talked about Lilo and Nani, like, kind of working on their relationship but i don't think that's the point of the movie i think the point of the movie is uh more of what we talked about just after that where they come to understand each other a little bit and come to understand their situation in a way that lets them kind of adjust because there's no fixing what happened they lost their parents they're they're both going to be dealing with that for a long time um, and the fallout of that for a long time. But one of the things that I see David do is he becomes kind of part of that picture for them, where when Stitch says, our family, it's little and broken, but still good, they kind of, uh, they kind of learn to see the relationships around them in a different light and appreciate them and appreciate them more over the course of the movie. And for uh, for me, David kind of becomes part of that picture. He's one of those relationships that um, that they start to uh, that they start to see as the. I'm not making a lot of sense, but he's he's one of the people that becomes part of the picture of what their lives are now. I totally agree with and what why, you're saying. And why there are good things in their lives Yeah, still. I think I follow what you're saying. And yeah, it made more sense than you think it did. Okay. Um, I think this is, like, a really important point to, to mention, too, right? One of the things that we keep saying is, like, oh, like, what fixes the strain in this relationship? I don't even know that this relationship is strained, right? The, the word they use in the film is broken. Yeah, right? okay, fair this enough. This is not a—this, in fact, if you, like, watch them interact throughout the film— this is not a mo- a movie about like a relationship headed downhill and then that bounces back up. This is about a relationship that is trending up. This is a relationship on the mend, right? So yes, there's strain, but it's not. That's not the characteristic function of the relationship or its feature, right? In fact, this is a, a about like I think about the family photo she holds onto under her bed, right? And I think about the way Greg, you kept saying like how how David fits into this picture. Right. And I kept thinking about that in connection to the literal photo she has under her bed. Like if you had to take a family picture of this family, and I, I keep using air quotes, right? Because they're a found family and not like a, a biological one. Yeah. Um, 
But if you had to take a, a picture of this family at the end of the movie, it actually probably wouldn't look that well, different. They do take pictures of this family at the end of the movie. Right. And with them the whole, at Disneyland. The whole, <laughs> uh, at Graceland, actually. <laughs> oh. Which is Elvis's home. That's even better. Yeah. That's even yeah, better. I was when, say, I first, I didn't think, when I first I saw it, I was like, is that Disneyland? And then I saw the gate and it said Graceland. I was like, it's Elvis's yeah. house in Hawaii. That, that, that makes yeah. much yeah, more yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the picture does have Nani and David and Lilo and Stitch, and it's a big deal. Well, and I think about this in connection to the ways that, like, people in this movie, like, roles change, right? Uh, as I add to my Lilo and Stitch time as a flat circle theory, <laughs> I would like to, to point out that one of the things that happens is that as you grow up, the, the role that you play in your family shifts considerably, right? Right? Like, like I think about the ways in which um, Nani has to step up to be the role of a provider and a role of, like, a, a working class person in that family who, who takes care. And I think of the way that David steps into the role of somebody who, like, you think of, like, the fun parent, right? In quotes, like, the, the parent who's just there to keep all the kids sane, right? Um, and then Lilo fills the role of, like, older sister who, like, watches over the younger one and then Stitch is just there to to break stuff but then, like, learn the meaning of family as well, right? And, like... I think about this in connection with, like, the quote, Ohana means family, family means nobody gets left behind. And, like, obviously that means, like, truly nobody physically gets left behind. But I also think that if we tie it into this cycle of change, nobody gets left behind by this progression, right? By the growth of the family over time. As the family begins to morph and adapt, we don't, that doesn't pass anybody. Everybody gets to grow and change as we find our new roles in a constantly changing family unit. You know, I just had this thought as you uh, mentioned the Ohana quote about nobody gets left behind. And I realized something. We already talked about the fact that Lilo says, I remember everybody who leaves. She has anger issues at her parents, I don't think is a stretch to say, for leaving her behind. Because family means nobody gets left behind but look at what my family did to me right and whether or not she like sees it that way she's definitely a girl with anger issues sure right you're spinning a little bit of like a vengeful like last of us part two where, where lilo goes on a blood rampage here i don't think it's quite so, so strong no. as that. but think about it the other part of the quote right nobody gets left behind or forgotten right Right. Which is maybe a little bit more of the relationship she has. I don't think she keeps that photo out of rage. No, right? no, 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 no. But, I mean, there, it is so normal. Like, this is part of grieving. When people die, it is normal to be angry at times. Like, that's just a normal part of the grieving process. And so whether or not Lilo is consciously recognizing it, I think there is that strain between, behind, uh, between the Ohana ideal and the belief that her parents left her even though she knows they died. Um, and I think that's actually kind of cool that that strain is in there because it's very realistic. People are walking contradictions, as I am prone to say. And for her to hold these two incompatible ideals and feel angry throughout the course of the movie, that makes sense. Like, that is human behavior. This is what we would expect to see in real life. I'm glad you brought up the, uh, the stages of grief. Uh, bit there because I was I was worried we were gonna pass uh, pass that by because both uh, both denial and anger are part of the grieving process and there's 
there's some of that going on like uh there's some of that going on and uh the denial part going on in there and the way that she talks about her parents leaving uh having left rather than having passed away yeah. and also while uh kids have a hard time understanding the idea of death a lot of the time there's a there's uh, a lot of kids at a certain stage of development sometime in elementary school will uh um will kind of start obsessing over death because it's something that they don't understand um so maybe maybe lilo is getting uh maybe lilo is not to that place where she's really considered what death means and so it's hitting her and nani very differently well, and it's interesting. You could make the argument that Lilo is obsessed with death, uh, based on her, uh, based on two things that she does that are considered uh, abnormal behavior. Probably more than two. Right, but <laughs> like you name your two, and then I'll add to the list. Yeah, there's there's two specific things. Because um, I'm not even going to touch her obsession with Elvis. Um, Cobra Bubbles is in their home, and she is shaking a jar of spoons that are drawn to look like her fellow hula dancers with a voodoo book next to her, like voodoo for beginners. Which, by the way, uh, voodoo is not that, for any of our listeners who don't know much about it. <laughs> yes. that, that, that's not what it is. And um, if, you, if you want to actually like learn something about it, go, go read maybe The Serpent in the Rainbow or something like that. Ooh, I haven't heard about this. What is this? Uh, it's a book by, um, I forget his name off the top of my head, but he's one of National Geographic's Explorers in Residence. Hmm. He, it's like the first book he wrote. It's called cool. uh, The Serpent in the Rainbow. That, that, might be a good, that might be a good read for someone hoping to actually get a little bit of a, a, little bit of a more... A uh, more in-person, accurate view of of what that uh, religion is, because it's not that. Right. <laughs> Wait, you mean to tell me it's not shaking spoons and pickle jars? <laughs> yes. Unbelievable. Yeah. But it is worth recognizing that in much of the public consciousness, uh, voodoo is associated with death, as far as belief systems go. And so for her to engage with something that that's likely her exposure to it is it's something to do with death is not shocking. Yeah, I'm not I'm not trying to counteract your point. I'm just trying to put a plug in here for Yes, um, no, I, I agree. for cultural for a little bit of cultural awareness because where I'm not an expert on the subject, uh the people who uh the people who typically talk about voodoo in that way are definitely not experts on the I subject. I would agree with the, you. The the same guy who wrote The Serpent in the Rainbow also wrote a book on zombification practices, which is really interesting and it'll will really change the idea people have about where the the concept of zombies comes from and what it actually it meant It does originally. come out of Haiti, though, right? Which is also where voodoo comes out of, right? Like, it comes out of the same um, geographical location. I I mean, the roots, uh, the roots of a lot of the ideas, I'm, uh, voodoo is, yeah, Haitian, um, of Haitian origin, but, a, like, a lot of the ideas come out of indigenous African beliefs right. and stuff like that. Well, we are drifting far afield, but voodoo, from what I understand, is what's known as a syncretic religion, which it's a blending of different religious traditions. Um, and specifically, from what I understand, it's Catholicism and African traditions blended together. Mm -hmm. um, I I can't say yay or nay on that. I, I can... Um, 
I can say that pretty much every religion has uh, yes. syncretism in it. Yes. <laughs> much much like Stitch, uh, about an hour and a half into this movie, we're uh, way out of our depth. Yes, we are. <laughs> Deep um, in the ocean. But yeah, go, go, read, uh, go read Serpent in the Rainbow if you want to find out yes. a little bit about that actual Please religion. Do. The other death thing that Lilo... Maybe we'll do that on here. Serpent in the Rainbow is a good read. We'll, we'll definitely look into that. Uh, the other thing that Lilo does that's death-related that I think is more interesting, though, is uh, how we see her the first time in the movie. She is swimming and giving a fish a sandwich. Um, and Which is, means he'll probably ask for a glass of milk. As we all know. Um, pudge the fish. Pudge the fish. And she is late to her hula recital and causes some chaos because she's wet and makes the floor all wet and all the other dancers slip and her teacher or coach or whatever the correct term is says lilo why are you late and why are you wet and she's like and she goes on this long explanation of why she had to feed pudge the fish a peanut butter sandwich instead of tuna and he goes lilo 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 why is this so important and she says pudge controls the weather here's the thing the car crash that lilo's parents died in was a result of bad weather. I did not make that connection. But yeah. That, that's really, yeah, that makes that scene a little bit more it, interesting. It, well, it takes it from kind of this funny, quirky scene to like a huge bummer, actually, in a lot of ways. Um, but Lilo wants to make the world different and make it so that people can't die due to bad weather. Right, which is the which is such a sweet and innocent thing, um, and she just expects other people to understand it. it. Anyway, fascinating. She's upset. She's grieving, and it's obvious that she's grieving. Yeah, there's a couple of other things here too, vis-a-vis Lilo and death, uh, which is a thing I never thought I'd say to transition into my thoughts ever. <laughs> um, but one of the things that's really interesting here is you were pretty dismissive of like the whole Elvis thing. But this is really important, actually, because Elvis didn't die. I mean, of course Elvis Presley died, right? Like, of course. But as far as celebrity figures go, you know what? I'm not going to say of course. True believers out there, rise up. But um, as far as celebrity figures go, Elvis Presley is one that there are a lot of people out there who, especially shortly after it happened, didn't believe that Elvis Presley was dead, right? Elvis Presley, while being a symbol for rock and roll, obviously, is also a symbol for, like, denying death. Sure. And, like, being in denial about the loss of somebody in your life. Well, and isn't it poetic that this is a movie about aliens and their visitations to Earth, and one of the most common explanations for why Elvis isn't dead is that he went back to his home planet. Dude, honestly, I'm so surprised they don't make any any plug about anything well and that actually makes me really happy that they don't like make that joke anywhere in here uh, but you know the writers were thinking about it <laughs> i also think about like the other way that she denies like death in this movie right i think about like her little doll that she made which by the way draws some interesting parallels between her and, and jumba actually that we could maybe meditate on a little Wow, later. okay. Um, Everything is a mirror in this movie. Time is a flat circle <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> um, everything repeats everything. It's just all recursive. But what I was going to say is, think about the way that like when she shows off the doll to the little girls, right? 
And she's like, I know her head is too big. It's because she got like a worm inside of her head that's swelling and growing. And she's like, but she's going to have an operation and she's going to be okay. Right? If you actually had a worm inside of your head, statistically the chances of survival would be like none. Right? Like worms that are inside of human bodies tend to consume what's in their path. And so you wouldn't survive a worm inside of your head. You, especially if you went through your ear canal, you just wouldn't survive it. Right? And so there's this idea that, like, even in, like, the construction of, like, her childhood fantasies, she constructs people who miraculously defy death, Mm. right? And who are able to, I mean, and then she listens to Elvis on repeat, right? And those two things combined are are pretty clear indications that she is trying to escape the eternal specter, that everlasting shade, that stalker of the human psyche. I tried to get wax poetic there at the end. How'd I do? Yeah, that was pretty good. Thanks. That was pretty good. The, right the, the, wind, the wind up to the punch at the end yeah. worked. Death. Yeah. One syllable for so many words. Yeah. But I do think it's really interesting the way that she, uh, the way that she does that. Yeah. Um, well, I think we can move on to the third question here. Can I read it? Yes. Sure. Because the way you wrote this is very funny to me. And if I read it in a very funny voice, you will also think it's very funny. Cobra Bubbles is a former intergalactic liaison who convinced the aliens that Earth was an endangered habitat for mosquitoes. Now he's a social worker who is actively trying to protect Lilo by taking her away from Nani. Uh, best Pulp Fiction novel pitch ever. (laughs) (laughs) I I would also like to mention, because you left this out, Cobra Bubbles is one of my personal favorites in this movie, just as a character, because he is so... Yeah, but that's not good for, like, a Hollywood Yeah, I know, I know. Of course I cut that. Um, so some of the background on why I like Cobra Bubbles is because when I watched this movie as a kid, he was definitely the bad guy. Like, he and the character of Gantu Duh. are in the exact same position. Gantu being his mirror, who is after Stitch as a social worker. Um, is he, though? I think we can really think about that. Oh, you! now that I'm going to use your flat mirror theory thing, you want to... I just don't know if he's the best reflection. But. Well, Gantu is the... Uh, so Cobra Bubbles was the was a fixer for the CIA is how he's pitched, and Gantu is the uh, fixer for this strange uh, dystopian intergalactic empire. Oh, yeah. You wanted to mention how this is a dystopian galactic oh, empire. Oh, yeah. So you know, you know when you first meet Stitch... <laughs> um this is uh you open up on the uh you open up on the galactic senate from star wars <laughs> i love democracy <laughs> i love democracy yeah sure and do. then and then you pan right up to uh right up to lady palpatine <laughs> who's like the who's you know Got the kind of uh, same crotchety blue energy going on. And then she unilaterally decides whether or not something is worthy to be called a sentient creature that's worthy to live in their galaxy. Um, And then she unilaterally decides to, like, execute it. And then they take a sample of his DNA and use it to train weapons on him that will only fire at his DNA. And track him for the rest of the film. And track him for the rest of the film. All under her orders. (laughs) And then all under her 
individual orders. Nobody votes on this. <laughs> they, they are they are both the uh, they are both the legislature and the legal system. They put him on trial in front of them and resolve it in seconds. Can, can I over a swear word? Can I explain, over a swear <laughs> word? Can I explain like a little bit more of what this looks like? Right. I thought the Star Wars comparison was pretty good. Oh no, let me pull it out even further for you. The only thing that she was missing was saying a new galactic empire. They even threatened to destroy a planet. They threatened to destroy a planet over this creature. It's true, but let me let me pull this out into a little bit better perspective, okay? Because actually she does still answer to people, right? She talks in the end about how the council has made decisions that are, like, outside of her thing. There's this incredibly dismissive and xenophobic statement about how aliens love order, which is, like, bizarre. Thanks, Cobra Bubbles. <laughs> um, but then um, we can analyze that from a colonialist perspective later. Um, but then, like, there's this idea that she's answerable to, like, some similar body. Let me hit it differently. She's a congresswoman. So we live in Utah. Imagine if Mitt Romney. <laughs> imagine, imagine if, imagine just hey, you gotta, you gotta bear with me. Um, imagine if, imagine if you duct taped your Alexa to like a motorized remote control car, essentially, and then gave it sentience somehow, and that thing was ripping around, right? And Mitt Romney pulled you in because of it, basically duct taped you up trained guns on your machine and then when alexa said the f word <laughs> raised everything to the ground just absolutely burned <laughs> democracy down right like well, and, then, and then he gets a and then he gets a call from the uh from the uh um from the president of the senate or right or, or mitch mcconnell calls him right yeah and he's like uh dude <laughs> You can't. We we have like, dude. <laughs> well, no, this gets better, right? So then, not well, only does this happen. Really quick, just oh, just for our viewers, do either of you remember what the what like the uh, the leader of the Senate is? Because I know it's Speaker of the House, and that's Nancy Pelosi, right? But, but what is it for the Senate? <laughs> uh, Senate Majority Leader. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Mitch McConnell. Yes, I should have remembered that when you said Mitch McConnell, but I just couldn't think of the right term. Thank you. Anyway, but not only that, once your horrific Alexa mo motorized monstrosity gets away, Mitt Romney comes in with one of his interns and says to you, who he has duct taped, hey, the two of you <laughs> are going to go after this monstrosity. The whole... When you frame it in the fact that she's basically like a senator, the whole thing just becomes so much funnier. Well, right? it's good because we've we've now like mixed a bunch of things. So we've got everything from like real life senators to Lilo and Stitch to Star Wars. And so when you pitched Mitt Romney, I just pictured Mitt Romney going, "I am the Senate," <laughs> um, which is which is very I, good. I love this idea too. This councilwoman in this movie is like, "I am the Senate." And then, like, five minutes later, somebody calls her and is like, nah, dog, you ain't. Like, you just aren't. You're not the Senate. Like, you've got to walk this back somehow. And then, like, the entire attitude that she takes at the end of this movie to the Senate is, like, she, like, kind of, like, jostles Cobra Bubbles and is like, hey, I know how it is to fight the man. And it's like, you do not. You are the man, right? She's like, I know what it's going to be like to have to file all this paperwork. And it's like, don't even at me right now, <laughs> Councilman. Which, by the way, is why I would say that a cleaner 
uh, corollary for Cobra Bubbles isn't Gantu, it's the Councilwoman, right? Because they're both liaisons for this capture. And they do kind of take, like, unilateral power. Yeah. Like, no, Cobra Bubbles answers to people, like, we all know that, but, like, he which, doesn't. Which makes Gantu David. Anyway. Huh. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Wasn't ready for that. <laughs> um. David takes him surfing on the water. Gant takes him surfing through the sky. Think about it. <laughs> so many. Time is a flat circle. It's just a disc with a sinuous line running through it. I, I love that we can... We haven't even to... gotten to any of the questions <laughs> that you wanted to ask about um, this. So, remembering that he used to be the CIA's fixer and now he's a social worker, uh, how does his past experience, in your opinion, shape his uh, current views about his responsibilities. I feel like I'm being asked to copy edit something that it, somebody in my creative writing 2600 class wrote. <laughs> so what do you think about his backstory? <laughs> like it just doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah, I can't answer this question. There's probably a good answer to it. You have anything, Greg? <laughs> I honestly don't. That's why I was talking about the other stuff, but I, I felt like we should just take a second in case anybody else wanted to contribute. Yeah, you obviously have something to weigh in here, Nathaniel. Well, so I I mean, it's kind of a joke that he's the one who convinced the aliens that mosquitoes were an endangered species. I did not remember that being such a firm subplot in this movie. Like, the, <laughs> so the mosquitoes thing is like... The whole thing. <laughs> it's so good. Um, but he convinced aliens not to destroy Earth before. Probably Pleakley. <laughs> <laughs> or somebody Pleakley really respects, like a professor or something. Um, but it was his Econ 101 professor. <laughs> basically, right? Anyway, um, he, Pleakley is the one who stands up in the movie and is like, no, you can't destroy Earth. It's, an, it's a habitat for an endangered species. And he goes on about how great mosquitoes are and then hilariously gets bitten uh, by, like, thousands of mosquitoes later. Um, but Cobra Bubbles is the one who convinced the, uh, the uh, Galactic Senate, essentially, of this. Um, and I think that makes it so that, in his mind, he is a protector who must make decisions even if they are based on total lies. Um, mosquitoes aren't endangered in any meaningful sense. Like, yeah, I guess they're only native to Earth, but... It sounds endangered to me. Right. But we would love, as a species of humans, to basically get rid of them. There's also a plan that may or may, know, may, or may not go into effect in the next few years where, uh, where people, where scientists would get rid of mosquitoes. Yeah, malaria is messing people up, it turns out. Yeah. Not fans. Yeah. Um, and that plan is fascinating, by the way. It's the one that makes it so that, like, they can't reproduce or that they um, give birth to ch children who die too all quickly. Of, so all of the uh, they they would introduce a they would introduce a uh, generation of um, I think I think it's they would introduce a generation of female mosquitoes who only give birth to sterile male mosquitoes. That's right. And then those uh, and then um, that mosquito population would, uh, die out or something like that because, uh, because the next generation of mosquitoes would have almost no, uh, almost no, uh, offspring. Right. I feel like there's probably a double edge to that. Hear me out. Sitting in the board meeting, pitching this idea. We're really drifting off the track. I don't care at this point. Sitting in the board meeting, pitching this idea. So yeah, they will produce a generation of uh, male sterile super mosquitoes. Sorry, was that word? Did you mumble something? Yeah, I said a uh, male 
Sterile super mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> Did you say super mosquitoes? I, look, it's going to be a rough year. No way getting around that. But afterwards, things are going to be awesome. Right? Like, there's got to be a dark side to this. Well, if I remember correctly, uh, part of it is that these male mosquitoes are supposed to be, like, ultra attractive. <laughs> They're just going to release a bunch of genetically modified Ryan Gosling mosquitoes into the sky. I have a little bit of faith. I just want to interject this. I have a little bit of uh, faith in the in the internet now that I didn't have a second ago because I started. I was really worried what was going to pop up as the top result when I typed in "plan to kill all," and the top result was mosquitoes. That's good. (laughs) That's very good. Um. Anyway, so I think that he views himself primarily as a protector, though, and who will do anything he needs to to protect those who cannot protect themselves. And he looks at Lilo, and he's like, "Mm, nope, she's not in a good situation. She can't protect herself. It's my job to do it. And one of the things he says to Nani, which is a sentiment that I have generally agreed with in life, is you need to consider what's best for Lilo, even if that means you're not in the picture. Um... Which, as a kid, makes him, like, irredeemably a bad guy when I watch this. But as an adult, I'm like, well, no, like, I kind of get that. Like, yeah, there are times where it's probably better for the kid to be out of whatever situation they're in. Um, And that's how I think, like, his past shapes his responsibilities. But then the next question I have is, what kind of ideology changes does he experience due due to his experience with the aliens at the end of the film? Um, what, how does he change as a person when he runs into aliens again? Hmm, this is a good question. I actually don't know how much Cobra Bubbles changes in this movie. He basically gets like the you can't mess with this family by order of intergalactic congress, right? That's like what changes his mind about the whole situation. Like, that's the line that, like, he's like, well, good point. But he, like, kind of does it with a half grin, so who knows. But it's like, I don't know. I don't know if his ideology does change much. He still seems to be like a... I gotta be honest. You're asking questions about his ideology, and I don't know if I could tell you, dude. Like, (laughs) this is a dude who was like, I saved the world once, and that was good enough for me. I'm gonna move into social work. (laughs) Like, I mean, awesome. Like, good for him. Like, he's... He moved from macro change to micro change. He stared into the abyss, and the abyss stared back, and he said, I'm going to deal with smaller problems. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, (laughs) this is like, this is really good. This is like the, the, uh, the corollary of me moving from marketing to custodial work. Like, I'm just like, I don't need to be in, like, there's nothing. I'm okay. I'm just gonna go. Um, which is like very funny to me. <laughs> like he's like, wow, that first trade deal. Like I, I, I said mosquitoes. <laughs> he's like, I said. He's like, I. My boss asked me if I prepared the PowerPoint, and I lied. So I said mosquitoes. And I just don't think I can live with that pressure anymore. Like, they're going to keep, they're going to ask me in my next meeting about mosquitoes. 
I'm going to go do social work, which as people who are familiar with social work know is a very stressful career. So like, it's very funny that he would dial it back by like being like, I'm going to, I'm going to go do social work. Anyway, I, because social work is easier than this. Um, no, that's very good. Um, I, I would say that one of the things he does is he steps out of his protective role in a way and trusts other authority instead of himself. And I think that's kind of a read we can take on it. Um, and he's willing to trust Lilo and Nani and recognize that they've got some pretty extenuating circumstances. Um, and also, if I remember correctly, does he not call Stitch a model, model citizen by the end of it? Because I don't know if he does or not. I can't. I, can't I know remember. he says that he wants to see Stitch be a model citizen. Well, clearly he's convinced by the end of the film. We got a regular Elvis Presley on our hands, a real model citizen. <laughs> but anyway, no, I just think Cobra Bubbles is cool, and I I feel like he goes through a little arc where he goes from like my way or the highway to no, I can trust other people. See, I I think he's cool, but for a different reason. I think he's cool because despite being just one of the humans who apparently have to start their evolutionary cycle all over again whenever an asteroid hits their planet um uh despite despite being just one of the humans and being on the grand scale a much smaller threat like he's he's the small stakes threat obviously the small stakes threats in in stories are usually the are usually the more emotive mm-hmm. threats in the stories like they're, they're the things that people really latch onto because they're understandable and feel a little bit more likely to go sour. But he he kind of goes beyond that. He's also the most intimidating character. He's definitely more intimidating than Gantu. Yeah. Gantu is somewhat low bar. Yeah, he's <laughs> well, kind of car- he's kind of cartoonish in in a bunch of scenarios but that said it's worth mentioning because gantu is drawn essentially like i think of him as like being an orca whale essentially even though that's not exactly what he looks like but you know big scary could eat you probably um and he's like as tall as a house and carries a blaster and he's kind of terrifying deep voice all gray military gear and somehow the social worker is scarier yeah he's He's thoroughly intimidating, and he uh, he's thoroughly intimidating, and he cares about his job so intensely. Like he cares about doing what he feels is right so intensely, and I feel like that just makes him way scarier as an antagonist than any of the other antagonistic figures in the show. Yeah, that's it, why I think he's cool. It turns out people who are. Uh, more than willing to zealously dole out their own will are terrifying, <laughs> right? Like, you don't say. You become convinced of your own uh, proper judgment for long enough, and you become a very scary person. Um, on a different subject, I did a quick Google search on how the malaria mosquitoes, on how the malaria killing mosquitoes would work. And it's actually that they release a whole batch of uh, a whole batch of male mosquitoes. Male mosquitoes don't bite anybody; just female mosquitoes do. And then they go and they carry genes so that when they mate with the malaria-carrying female mosquitoes, their offspring carry a gene that's like a self-kill gene that will make them die before 
they reach reproductive age. Wow, that seems like really cool science that could in no way possibly be deployed negatively against us. Awesome. Whereas the uh, whereas the male mosquitoes live uh, live long enough to uh, impregnate. I don't know if that's the right word for egg laying creatures. Reproduce uh, though. Reproduce uh, ten times. Wow, it's been tested in Brazil, I guess. There will be a moment where all we have left are those male mosquitoes. And it's just going to be like, we're just going to have a whole race of like Jimmy Buffett mosquitoes. And that's going to be it until life finds a way. And then we have super mosquitoes. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's going to be a rough year. All right. Final question. That third one took a long time. I know. We kind of got off the beaten path. Uh, we took the road less traveled. So this is something that I've always loved about this movie. Um, the film has characters which can be classified according to their mouth shape. Um, human children, such as Lilo, Myrtle, and the other unnamed hula dancers, are similar to several aliens, notably Stitch, Jumba, and Pleakley, in that their mouths are very large and Muppet-like. Um, conversely, the human adults, such as Nani, David, and Cobra, are small-mouthed and more traditional in their appearance, as is the leader of the aliens. Notably, this division also emphasizes the types of priorities these characters have and the ways they tackle problems. The children-mouthed creatures handle life like children, and the adult-mouthed ones like adults. So, how does this animation choice affect the storytelling, if you even agree with my premise? I... I don't agree with your premise. Yeah, not even I, remotely. I I watched really I watched as carefully as I could, and I found a lot of the adult characters doing like the huge mouth thing too. And then I found a I found a lot of rather cartoony characters with really tiny mouths, like the like the sunburned beach guy. Sure. And the there was the there was the hula instructor who. Also had the cartoony mouth thing. And Lilo's mouth is small when it's closed. Yep. Sorry. Sure, this isn't a perfect one-to-one. Also, none of the adults really handle problems like adults in this. (laughs) Also that. Sure, this isn't a perfect one-to-one. Except for maybe Cobra Bubbles, who was mature enough to walk away from a very tough job. (laughs) Now, uh, Now that I've harassed you a little bit... On your premise, um, I I do think that there are certain characters, um, certain characters whose like mouth shape remains stable and moves like a normal humans, and others whose and others whose consistently is Muppet is cartoonish and like grows and expands in an anime esque fashion. Sure, yeah, um, like uh, like uh cobra bubbles his stays normal the entire time and uh palpatine um hers hers uh, is that what we're just calling her it's just i can't i I lady sheev oh okay (laughs) yeah i um i can't keep track of her name to save my life even yeah um but yeah hers hers stays the same shape um but then there are other characters like Bleakly and Jumba and Lilo and um and uh I think Nani too, honestly, whose uh whose mouth shape is kind of determined by 
their uh, their emotional state and their level of animation at the sure. time. And, yeah. yeah, and that might be a better way to put it. Uh, but they do do that Muppet thing, for lack of a better term, where it like, is yeah. basically from side to side and like splits. And sometimes like erases their chin, basically, yeah. Right. Um, Which brings me to like my answer to your question, how does it affect the storytelling? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a bland answer from my perspective, but just it's a really good tool that's used in animated storytelling like the over the over emotiveness it's what you it's what you have to do it's what's not what you have to do it's what stage actors have to do on the stage is to over emote um over emote and make things visual to people who are far away in the same way animated characters don't have all the facial nuance that uh, don't have all the facial nuance that we have so it's really nice when animators don't try and be ultra realistic because it carries uh it carries the meaning across a lot better yeah this is especially true for children in the movies too right like the more expressive the characters can be the better right mm-hmm. um one of the things that I also think is very important is Lilo's mouth is huge to remind us that she bites. <laughs> also true of Stitch's yes. mouth. A lot of people bite in this movie. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, I, but I agree with Greg largely that this is a tool for expressiveness, which again, is kind of like a, a flat answer a little bit, but I think it's, it's the one that... I, I, warned, I think I warned everybody that it was going to be a flat answer. Yeah, I, I was agreeing with you, not like roasting you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I... I, I can we can we have a podcast where all we do is just roast people? Um, I, I was hoping you were gonna say, "Can we have a podcast where all we do is just roast Craig?" Because <laughs> well, I'd be here for I, it. I, I dialed back <laughs> off of that a little bit because I was like, "Well, I don't want to be that mean." What would you call that podcast? Yeah, we're not gonna come up with anything. I just like tried no. to like run through like barbecue, but like somehow put Greg's name in there. Somehow my somehow my brain went to odd like obscure Dr. Seuss references like butterside down toast. Oh, very and, good. And stuff like That's that. That's a good one. But good. I didn't come up with anything. I scanned through my I scanned through my database of weird Dr. Seuss stuff and didn't come up with anything yeah, I, I can modify. Yeah. Dang it. That's a bummer. Uh, listeners, if you come up with a podcast name for how we can roast Greg, uh how to serve Greg? Like how to serve man like that old uh Greg eggs and ham? Gre- oh okay. That's that sounds that's, okay. that sounds think, thoroughly I unappetizing. I think it's probably but... nothing, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's good. I, I it kind of made me feel gross a little bit, so But now you're changing your twiddle Twitter handle to that, right? <laughs> like it's now Greg Eggs and Ham, right? Alright, let's wrap this up. Um let's, let's What go. I wanted to say with the uh, adult children comparison, um and if we want to say that Nani is also kind of in this camp is because she's transitioning from being a child to an adult. Because consistently her mouth is more like an adult mouth, but then it's never quite as emotive and expressive as the other characters that have the Muppet mouth, for lack of a better term, or the animated mouth. Um, But it does stray in there. She's transitioning. What I have found um, is that the children that I've experienced watching this movie tend to like the children with the very expressive features. And seem to distrust the adult figures more. Not that they like dislike them, but they're more likely to trust Stitch or Lilo or Jumba or Pleakley, and be a little more cold and distant. Why do you think that is? Like that might be interesting to yeah. Get. I, I mean, I would say that it's 
due in part, though not entirely, to the animation style. I'd say that plays into it. But what this does is, regardless of whether or not it's trying to, I think it does put children who watch this movie in the camp where they are more affectionate towards our protagonists um, and less inclined towards the antagonists and more likely to view the story through the lens of Lilo. Where, for Lilo, it's never really clear what's going on. And as a kid, when you watch it, the full weight of a social worker coming to take away a child doesn't really hit until the moment it starts happening. But then Lilo just runs away, so, like, it's fine, I guess, kind of. But it's it hangs over, like, a cloud, in a way. I also think about this in connection with just the way the kids are versus the way adults are, right? Like, kids run around, like, gleeful and joyful and excited and adults are tired all the time i got told to smile more today whoa (laughs) okay it's like i like i get it like it would be a cooler place like my job would be cooler if i was smiling more (laughs) like i get it but like i'm so tired (laughs) like and it's just like funny because like as adults we tend to like mellow out pretty considerably aliens don't though because they love order (laughs) <laughs> okay aliens love rules no but this is this is worth pointing out all it's of probably the probably why they have space travel honestly <laughs> right <laughs> they can just obey and apply the laws of physics <laughs> anyway all of the characters that have childlike qualities or you know have qualities and similar with the way the children are drawn are highly energetic beings and the ones who aren't drawn that way are less energetic Though efficient. One dude throws fire. I don't know. He's just <laughs> tired, man. He's just a grown-up. He just had to file his first Form 1040. He's a citizen of the U.S. It's tough out there. Give the guy a break. Nathaniel's out here like, my take is that David should smile more. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, did just have a, I did just have a thought because of some of the things you guys were bringing up. Um, as far as how that animation choice affects the storytelling... Because uh, because that animation choice is absent, like the the super expressive mouths, those are absent in some of the characters. We automatically, uh, we automatically start to connect with characters who we maybe wouldn't under normal circumstances, because movies, especially Disney movies, don't usually focus on the five-year-old girl and her dog right though if they're there they're the background characters and we focus on the the teenage princess but this tells us who to this tells us who to root for because Mm. if people are comfortable with the with the people who show more expression then these people showing expression even though they're not the typical characters we would think of rooting for are going to become the ones we we root for yeah, I, I agree with you on that, Greg. But don't you think David would just, like, people would think he's more open if he just smiled a little more? Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> Babe, smile more. <sighs> David. David. David, you're killing me, man. On, smile more. On that, I was uh, one time in Salt Lake City uh, with a dude that I was in a class with. We were on basically, like, a field trip for this class in college um, or, like, an extracurricular thing. And he and I were walking to, like, Chipotle or something to get food. 
And he passed by this girl who was clearly having a bad day. And he said, hey, you should smile more. Total stranger. He never met her before. I have never seen anybody whirl on somebody and like smack them down so fast. Because she's like, really? You just said that. Like, really? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, like, you should. You'd look great. And it's like, oof, oof. <laughs> Oof. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you an aesthetic philosopher. <laughs> <laughs> Philosophy is of aesthetics. Oh. You should smile more. <laughs> oh. You know the nice thing about everybody wearing masks now? <laughs> Nobody knows we, what anybody's facial expression is. I made this comment. All they see are my serial killer eyes, because apparently I have those. Oh, okay. That's, <laughs> that's what I was going to say, is you go to like a restaurant, like in the drive-thru or whatever, and you, like, see the person, they're just glaring at you, and they seem really upset. And you realize it's because, oh, these people all have fake smiles normally because everybody hates working fast food and working a drive-thru. So these people normally have fake smiles, and now those smiles don't reach their eyes, but that's all we can see. And they all look like they hate their lives. Maybe that should teach us something about the condition of American labor. I don't know. That's just a wild thing. Anyway, uh, any other questions? No, that that's... Well, there's the one that we always ask. Uh, did you like it, and would you watch it again? I've been waiting a long time for this one, but I'll let Greg go first. Of course I liked it. I, I love this movie. Um, and yes, I'll I'll watch it again, because I, uh, I noticed that my uh, one-year-old son uh, actually sat down and watched part of it. So, oh, very good. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to watch this again. I like this movie a lot. I caught this movie during its theatrical run. It was awesome. Um, would I watch it again? Probably. I have something important to add here. This movie launched a spinoff series. So it's pretty explicitly stated in the text of this film that he's Experiment 626, but he's the first time Jumba creates life. Right? Or at least that's strongly implied. Right? Like his other experiments were all theoretical. Right? But this is the one where he, he he's like, oh, except for that one. My bad. The series reveals that there are actually 625 preceding experiments and a few more after that. And they go and hunt these down. That was a misstep on Disney's part. Because what I actually want is a prequel series detailing the X-Files-esque life of Cobra Bubbles. Oh. Okay, now imagine this. Imagine this. Cobra Bubbles sitting at his desk at the Library of Congress where he's just a paper filer with a poster that says the truth is out there and a little UFO, and something comes across his desk and makes him start digging. A man doesn't just end up at Roswell making alien negotiations. Give me the Cobra Bubbles backstory on Disney+. Plus. Make, make it live action. Can we get Bob Iger on the phone? <laughs> uh, yes, it's possible. We just have to get enough tweets. <laughs> yes. So, I, I would like to see Idris Elba. Play Ooh, Cobra okay, Bubbles. I'm here for that. It's a good casting yeah. choice. Wow, that's really good. If you want someone with an intense stare like Cobra Bubbles does when he takes his sunglasses off, I think I think Idris Elba would be the uh, right would be the right person. There's room in there for a good joke though, where we do like a buddy cop film, basically. <laughs> I already and got it. Who's Scully? You ask. I know you're wondering. Go ahead. Who is who? Michael B. Jordan. Okay. Oh, look, we made a perfect TV show. It's just done. <laughs> just like that. That was so easy. <laughs> but I was going to say, there's room for a good joke in here where Cobra is trying to get the stare down the whole series. 
and it's just painful to watch. So wait, is this a comedy now? <laughs> I mean, it, it's a Disney Channel spinoff. It's it's kind of a requirement. That's fair. That's but, fair. And also, Lilo and Stitch. Is it a comedy? Is it a drama? A little bit of both. I'm gonna say it. Tm 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 tm. I have no interest in writing this. The only thing I care about is that when they do the credits for this TV show, <laughs> they say based on an idea. <laughs> by logan johnson and i think that's gonna do it for this episode of peep this noise thanks so much for tuning in uh wow we had a really raucous romp here a really good time talking about uh, lilo and stitch if you've enjoyed this uh bless you um and also uh you can like us subscribe us on your podcast platform of choice uh give it a little follow if this is your kind of thing we talk about a lot of different things on this show um on our next episode of this show we're actually going to be talking about one of my all-time favorite albums uh, we're going to be digging into Blood on the Tracks by Bob Dylan, which will be the second folk album we've dug into. Folk, folk rock, depending on how you look at it, uh, on this podcast. Uh, and it should be a really good experience. Uh, some of those songs are lengthy, so you'll want to set out a chunk of time. There are two eight-minute tracks on Blood on the Tracks. Uh, a lot of blood, a lot of tracks is what I will say about that album. Um, but definitely worth a listen. And, and Bob Dylan, uh, I will say, took the Nobel Prize in Literature for his collected body of work for a reason. And this, uh, this album, if you've never heard his stuff, is a great standout example of that. Um, if you like what you've heard, we would really appreciate it if you would tell a friend about the show. Um, we don't advertise, so any, any word you can spread is we really appreciate that. One of the things you can also do if you like this show and you want to reach out to us, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at PeepThisNoise on Twitter. You can find our website at uh, www.peepthisnoise.com. I'm bad at the internet, so you still need the uh, the www. You still need to tell your computer you're going to the World Wide Web before you access peepthisnoise.com. When you do, you'll find a lot of useful links and, and some original content we wrote some time ago. I promise there's more forthcoming. I'm just a slow editor during the corona times, it turns out. Uh, I'd like to give a special thank you to Katie Davidson and the band Key Losers for the use of our theme song, Don't Know Why, from the album California Light, uh, which is good. It's a good album. Um, I realize I just told you to listen to Blood on the Tracks, but while you're in there, just add uh, California Light to that Spotify queue. Start doing the dishes. You'll be happy in no time. Really good stuff. Uh, you can reach us. The one thing I forgot, mail at peepthisnoise.com is an email if you are still using electronic mail like many of us are. Thanks again for listening to Peep This Noise. And remember, everybody likes bad things. So open up your mind. Ever-